This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, and stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Waiting on Reparations, a production of iHeartRadio. Yo, it's waiting on reparations and we back in effect. We had to kick it off this way in case your asses forget. Rap is the flex, try to clash with the best, package it fresh. They can't keep up, so they asking the ref. Now I'll put you on in case you didn't follow it. On the show, we bridge the gap between hip-hop and politics. Acknowledge it. If you pass the lesson, then we give you all a scholarship. War University, but you don't need no hollow tips. A prophet spit fell on the ground. That's when the beast was born, trying to tear the whole thing down. Fuck your police reform. You got hot takes, I start to get you ratioed You bait me bro, dope, and I heart my reparations, yo Uh, uh, it's like that Yeah, it's like this and like that Waiting on reparations as a matter of fact This is Lingua Frank, a dope knife, they call me Mac What? <laughs> hey! Yo, what's good? We back! Lots is good, this is Dope Knife I'm Lingua Franca. And we are waiting on reparations. Yo. Hurry up. <laughs> Delay so no back. further. <laughs> it, <laughs> it is good really, to be back. It is. I'm super excited for some of the stuff we got coming up. Uh, got yeah. some some, inter- some dope interviews with some dope people. We got some interesting new topics and angles that we're going to be approaching this go around. Um, and, you know, the whole show was first launched during the f- beginning week of the George Floyd uprising last summer. And so it's oddly poetic that here we are beginning our second season of the show as things have come full circle with the Derek Chauvin verdict having been averticized. Yeah, last I, was just week. About to, I was just about to ask if anything happened while we were gone. Is it anything? Of any Did anything happen? Time? Nothing guess, happened. No, maybe, maybe, nothing, maybe. Nothing ever happens. Please don't kill anyone ever. What was New. your What was your whole feelings in the that verdict? Well, I think that there was in general like a clenching in the jaw and like a like a like a balling of the fists, like for the full hour where that I learned that it was coming, um, knowing. 
even then, like regardless that it didn't really, I mean, like in the grand scheme of things, the work would go on. Mm -hmm. And in fact, having a sense of fear that like, if that like a guilty verdict would then allow like reformists and liberals to like say, look, the system works. We don't need to do anything like we're good to go pack it up. And in, and since then, you know, it was reported in Axios that member, some members of Congress have felt that um, Derek Chauvin's guilty verdict um, has lessened the pressure on them to enact uh, criminal justice reform, which so my well, fears are coming true. So, yeah, <laughs> I was going to say they can think that if they want. to. I think the reason that that is not going to happen is because. The, the Republicans and just the right wing in general feel it's it's almost like they have all fully gone in on Chauvin is innocent in the aftermath yeah. of things, which was I don't want to say shocking. It's not the right word. Just let's go with surprising. I was surprised that they took that hard of a turn, because if you remember back during the summer, it was like, you know, the, the Ben Shapiro's of the world and the Tucker Carlson's of the world were they, they were using the George Floyd uh, incident to Omos as a tool so they could downplay other things. So they would be like, look, we all agree that Derek Chauvin's a terrible person and George Floyd was murdered. So, you know, there's more to Breonna Taylor. It's not, you know, not, they, they would they would use it in that way. And so I was expecting them to keep going on that end, kind of using this as like their, hey, this is the one, the one incident that we all agreed was bad. So that proves that we're not racist or that systemic racism doesn't exist because the system worked, yada, yada. But no, it's like literally the second that the verdict was, was read, they were like, this is horseshit. He's innocent. Get I can't believe this is the PC cancel culture. Of the it, it's it's kind of nuts. It's kind of nuts. But I don't know if that's the right, just from a political standpoint, I don't know if going into 2022, Chauvin was innocent is the slogan that they want to be using. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I kind of hope they're right in that, like, the whole, oh, the woke mob scared the jury into, like, you know, you know, denying the evidence before them. Like, I mean, I, the, like, you know, I very, very, like, obsessed with and, like, plant a lot of seeds of hope in, like, the power of the people. And, like, I know it's just one case out of the thousand people that are murdered by the police every year. Um, but, like, if millions of people rising up can, like, bring a modicum of justice, even if it's not transformational, uh, good. But how do we how do you deal with the volume of it? Because even now, you know, we're sitting here talking about, oh, the Chauvin verdict was what, a week, two weeks ago? And we're in the aftermath of two other high profile police shootings. Right now we're waiting new body cam footage coming out from Elizabeth Town. Was it Elizabeth Town? Elizabeth City, North Elizabeth, Elizabeth City, City, North Carolina, yeah. So that one's supposed to be bad. They're on a state of emergency. It's like it almost never ends. Uh, yeah. It's it's kind of depressing to think about in that way, especially so soon after the verdict was won for for people who did take some solace in it and found it as like, hey, a, a small victory in an ocean of bad shit. It's like mm, the bad shit just keeps Yeah, and then that was the other on. thing. Yeah, like literally maybe six or seven minutes after like I watched the live stream of the verdict reading, like I learned about Micaiah Bryan mm -hmm. and uh, just the seething with rage that yeah. like like the 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 casualties we will sustain 
in this like war for like transformation. <laughs> like where there's so many people that are gonna die like in the year to come, that's in the years that may, may take to like transform the system, so. I think maybe we should tackle the abolish the police or police sure. reform or something again in the future. Yeah, but we'll definitely come back around to it. We're not going to waste uh, or any more time because we have a pretty long one for you guys today. We are about to have a long, in-depth conversation with the one and only rapper activist, Immortal Technique. I am trying real hard not to fanboy the fuck out right now. You're doing a terrible job. <laughs> Come really on. Really fucking, fucking blowing it. Come on. You you got to admit, when it was like, yo, we're going to talk to Immortal, you, just a little bit, you was like, what? What I really enjoyed about this conversation is really two things. Uh, his humility, like his willingness to just like chat for, he was just like, yo, yeah, it was good. Like, let's talk for as long as y'all want to talk. I'm just kicking it. And also his continual... Uh, reframing of our conversation around the context and conditions for the things that he does. Mm -hmm. So like when we ask him about like, oh, yo, you built a fucking school in Afghanistan instead of being like, yeah, I went over there and then I met kids. We played soccer and I like, you know, ate the traditional food. He was like, yeah, let me talk to you about like foreign intervention in the Middle East and like its impacts and like imperialism and the military industrial complex like always bringing it back to like these larger systems that like that that like spur him to do what he does and I found that really really like inspiring that like yeah I mean obviously from his music you can tell like he thinks very systemically but like it, it, he, I don't know if he knows how to turn it off which is kind of fucking sick <laughs> the thing I really dug is I mean it's not that I had any reason to not think that this would be the case but it's just he seems like a really really nice guy <laughs> you know He's what I'm saying like, nice a, like yeah. a genuine nice good dude yeah. so you know without further ado we're gonna get into that and we will holler at y'all we're gonna have that interview coming up for you after the jump When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, and stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss. 
host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yo, today we are going to be talking with legendary MC, Immortal Technique. Immortal, how you doing? How you doing, sir? So, on this show, like, what we try to do is bridge the gap between politics and hip-hop and discuss things that, you know, always revolve around how those two things intersect and how they affect each other, vice versa. And you, you know, for better or worse, you're known as, like, the... At this point, you're, like, the political rapper, you know what I'm saying? We even had a little poll on Instagram that we did when we first launched the show when we were, like... What do y'all think of when you think of political rap or political hip hop? And most people said, oh, Immortal, oh, Immortal, yeah, Immortal Technique, you know? So my question is, what influenced you when you were coming up in terms of like that specifically, not necessarily your rap style or your rhyme scheme style, but what MCs or music did you look towards when you were writing and you were like, oh, that's the angle that I can take or that, that I should take? Um, well, I think I had a lot of different influences coming up. Uh, one of the main ones, obviously, was KRS-One and uh, Rakim. So I grew up listening to people that were well-versed in the art of lyricism. So that was a major influence from day one. Um, I was always a big, uh, I was always a person who was big on lyrics. I had a lot of respect for the people that I seen do it because I knew it wasn't easy. Um, I think for me, as an adult looking back and at this stage of my career when i'm out here you know still making music or trying to put some new stuff out now um i tend to look back and make those same kind of assessments about my life before you guys ask a question like that it's just funny i I tend to think about these things and wonder you know who were the individuals who set me on this path and it wasn't just uh famous rappers but it was also the example of people in my community um, revolutionary figures, and they definitively influenced the style of, of music that I have. And I wouldn't have this style, or I wouldn't be doing what I do without them. You know what I mean? Even the, not just the ones that we remember from the past that are all heralded and have movies about them, but the ordinary folks that I met in my life that I learned um, not just revolutionary politics from, but an understanding of what it was like to exist as a person um, who was black or brown in the United States of America uh, about 20 or 30 years ago, as opposed to going 
through that childhood experience at like the 90s, um, in my 20s, in the early 2000s when I was paroled. So I, I just enjoyed that, that different wealth of, of knowledge that was bestowed upon me. But I would say in terms of hip hop, it was those two that I learned and, and was influenced by. And then later on in life also, you know, obviously uh, the Panthers and Malcolm, but also Mumia Abu-Jamal. Um, I feel like uh, Patrice Lumumba is a person who's overlooked a lot. And I think um, sometimes when we look at indigenous figures of revolution, um, are whitewashed and written out of history. So it's important to go back and, and talk to those indigenous people about what their struggles actually were before it gets redefined to us by, you know, mainstream society, which will paint something very, you know what I mean? They don't really give you the opportunity to represent yourself in the best way, which is why I guess I always wanted to do independent music. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your verse on Ari the Rugged Man's Who Do We Trust, which came out in January. But oh, on the okay. track, you reference thinkers like Leo Strauss and Robert Michaels, and one of our listeners wanted to know if there was any early revolutionary writing that inspired your own writing. And I'm personally also curious what you've been reading these days. Um, uh, <laughs> I think that um, what I enjoy reading or have always enjoyed reading is uh, a very, very detailed historical account of how things were. And I think that it's one thing to talk about revolutionary politics and ideology, but unless you can define the time period upon which it happens, I think that is essential to revolutionary change. For example, um, we all love boxing and UFC, but one of the first times in which we know that this was done to people, a gladiatorial arts was born, the birth of it, was during the Servile Wars in, in the Roman Republic. Not the Empire yet, the Republic, um, where everything was supposed to be fixed. And there was a certain area that refused conscription, and so the survivors of this revolt were made to fight to the death against one um, Everyone now sees this in a different you know, format on television in one way or another, but just remember that the Third Servile War was where we heard the name Spartacus, which is the only gladiator from ancient Rome that people remember, really. I mean, you struggle to find another one. But it was after that that the Roman Republic collapsed within 50 years and became an empire that was more efficient, but less free in many ways than people thought. But at the same time, the degree of freedom that the Republic bestowed upon people um, wasn't seen by individuals on the bottom tiers of that society. And we see that reflection in the United States of America. And music is just a, a, a reflection of that. And people who want to give that a voice in our society or, or, or remind individuals of what we've gone through. And everything has its place. So, you know, I always tell people, I, yeah, I'm not the person that you're most likely gonna hear banging in the background of the strip club. Uh, but at the same time, the music that I make is not club music, so to speak. Sure, there's some stuff that's catchy that moves you, but it was made to to generate thought. You know what I mean? In the same way, a book has flashy metaphors and great concepts, but unless there's a point to it all, you know what I mean? Unless there's a plot, then what the hell did I just read for 400 pages? You know what I mean? Where, where is this going? So I think that's always been something that I've emphasized. And now I'm doing a whole bunch of other stuff, script writing, 
Um, I'm reading for a couple of parts that people have asked me to come aboard. I'm not an actor by trade, but I guess they think I look scary and I know how to, I, I can I can memorize like 10 pages in a day and it's super easy. I had just literally got on board with this type of stuff. So basically just that um, I was gonna extend the stuff that I've been doing musically to books and film, not just for adults, but for kids, which is weird because you gotta relearn how to rhyme like a kid, which is funny. You gotta make it the most basic format possible, which I'm not used to doing. I'm used to taking the most complicated words and phrases and putting them together. So, you know what I mean? It's like asking someone who's a chess player to play checkers. You know, if you're a chess player, man, you're great at chess, but a checkers player might wipe you off the board at checkers because it's a different game. That's how you see, you know, boxing and MMA. Some people are really good at one sport. Please don't get in the other <laughs> because it's a different <laughs> game. Right, right. I remind people. Um, so something that we're interested in is... Uh, the concept of using like hip hop as a tool for education um, or even activism or organizing. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think you could definitely say hip hop could be used, but any musical form I think could be used. And I think what I've discovered on this journey of writing the middle passage is that that's exactly what the world before we call it the new world or, or European colonialism from the 14th to the 18th century, 19th century, many places. But I, I think when we look at that, all forms of learning were done through a musical system. Even now, um, none of us learned the alphabet through a numerical system, although in some languages, uh, letters have a, 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 a significant number attached to them. But all of us learn the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, very, as, a, as a musical scale. Um, everything that was taught to us as a society was done through music. Uh, one of the most riveting things that was brought to my attention that is just a truth people have known for a long time but escaped me was that there were tens of thousands of individual African instruments that were destroyed during the course of the Middle Passage. And these were the rhythms, these were the songs, these were the lessons that were taught to young people about what it means to be a warrior, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a person, where your place is in life, where your place is with your people, where your place is in the universe. Yes, abstract concepts like that existed very much so to people. It wasn't like uh, individuals were just ignorant living in huts, like a stereotype would have people think. No, these were very, very well-developed societies for the people that had the means to get to them, which is the flaw that they inherently had, which is how they became colonized so easily. You know, they when you have a pyramid system, you just have to knock over the head of the snake, so to speak. That's how they thought of it. And that's what you do to any society. You say, okay, I have a pyramid that I want to defeat. But you knock off the head of the snake and everything else comes down. Which is why people have misunderstood American politics for so many years. You want to knock off the head of the snake, but now you're facing a hydra. You're not just facing colonialism through one means. You're facing uh, uh, the culmination of that uh, religion, which pay, plays a heavy role in colonization, not just for uh, Africans and, and indigenous people. That's a laughing uh, mythology that uh, I think needs to be confronted. No, it's done wonders to enslave white people as well and have them work against their own interests and work against workers' rights 
which, again, you're dealing with the clergy. The clergy are uh, uh, beyond a bourgeois institution. The, the, the clergy manipulate in every society a bourgeois institution and also uh, the workers of, of all institutions because all of them have some faith, so to speak. There are very few people in our society when we talk about a global uh, a community that are atheists. I mean, I, I love y'all when I get to meet y'all out there, whatever. If y'all are watching now, no disrespect. I, I even took my camera off for y'all. I don't do that for nobody. I, I love to talk to y'all because I think it's an interesting philosophical conversation. But again, the vast majority of the planet believes in God and someone else has understood that for thousands of years and was just really smart to be able to manipulate it to create the the bastions of the society we have now. And that's just one. Oh my God, like imagine we got to talk about all the rest of them. You know what I mean? Gender politics, men, women, you know what I mean? Uh, 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 foreign policy, sorry. So I'm glad you touched on like that adversity, but also in some certain aspects, the uniformity of like global cultures with regards to religion, you know, millions and billions of people across the world believe in religion, but do so differently. And in recent episodes, we've tried to shift our spotlight from North American issues towards a more global perspective, highlighting the work and in recent incarceration of Marxist Leninist rapper Pablo Vassell. We talked about the political life of Ugandan rapper turned presidential candidate Bobby Wine. Um, and in your own music and activism, you've often highlighted the struggles against colonialism, um, particularly in the global south. Um, and I recently, I guess like last year, I was talking with Angela Davis about the importance of international solidarity. And I often have this on my mind, you know, working in local politics myself, when people get frustrated when they're trying to get like they street paved, like not necessarily seeing the re- relevance of like what's going on in Haiti or what's going on in Bolivia. So um, I just wanted to ask you, what do you think we can achieve through displays of international solidarity, both as musicians and as activists? Well, first, I would say that you don't need to have uh, a degree in politics to to understand these things. For anyone out there who thinks that we're asking the impossible of people um, when we ask them to be aware, they're plenty aware. You know, you see people who live in a jungle who don't live in a big city. They're very aware of different things. You live people who live in a big city and they jump through traffic the way I do, like it's nothing. And someone else who doesn't live in a city where there's just gigantic things coming back and forth at 80 miles an hour wouldn't get that. They think you're risking your life. But to me, it's as simple as running through whatever. Um, I think that there's been this sort of um, primitive versus uh, uh, futuristic um, ideology that's been pushed on us, that the past or that the things that we've uh, encountered as part of our struggle in our society are primitive. And this is the new world where everything's futuristic, but it's just organized barbarism. I remind people that's what you're face when you face imperialism. And when you talk about the South or when you talk about Africa or when you talk about South America, uh, Asia, at the end of the day, whether it's uh, a person of color or a white person or any other person in charge of a society, it's just about the resources. You know, the ideas that all of Latin America was some communist haven for years. No, it wasn't that. It was just that those were the only two things that people were serving, Pepsi and Coke. You know, whenever a, a leftist society came into power, they immediately consolidated um, um, the different political parties of the left that existed and said, no, we're going to be one party now. And when the right wing came in, it was the same thing. They would consolidate everything. They, it, the ideology is secondary. 
the control of the resources is first. And that, again, gives way to the... Listen, I, I, I don't want to give you guys quotes that are going to go viral, but it's just <laughs> here's the problem with America. People are, are, are fighting imaginary socialism, and they don't know what socialism is. It's just workers yeah. controlling the means of their production, and everything else is fancy dressing. And if people don't understand that, then they're the ones that are being shorted. If they want to talk about how taxes are illegal, yes, absolutely. All these other things that we have in common with other political fields I can draw truth from. You know, if I run into a religious uh, Christian person and tells me, you know, America is, is a Satanist society. I say yes, but not because women have access to health care. It's because you've killed so many children in Iraq and you have no idea yeah. about that. You know, anything left of hunting the homeless for sport is communism. And that's what you've been fed. And for real. But that's the truth of what we see in our society. And the truth is that it's not that we have to worship one political ideology or the other. You can see the truth in either yeah, one of like them. Yeah, we're like not housing the homeless and shit. Yeah. Because everything <laughs> comes out in the wash. And when there's cold, hard facts, what, what did the policy produce? You know, what did it make? You know, has trickle-down economics ever worked? No. You know, has, has violent overthrow of a society worked to some degree? Yes. You know, is that the only way that a society can change? No. So, I mean, I think that that's the, the, the real question. You know, the early civil rights organizers had to ask fundamental questions to themselves. They said, you know, do as black people, is the point to have a country of our own inside America, get along with white folks and make them respect the laws that make them get along with us, or go back to Africa? This is a, this was the Garvey movement. That was the idiot. That was the, the 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 focus that he was confronted with. And you know, being a Harlemite, I learned this history very early. That these were the existential questions that people struggled with. And you can still find a society that never got a, a definitive answer for a lot of people because they say, "Well, what the hell am I doing here?" I see people relocating back to to to. To Africa because there's economic opportunity over there. I see people leaving the East Coast, going to the South, saying, hey, you know what? There's just an easier way to set up a business here. People are, are in general leaving the United States because they don't see it as the, the hegemonic power that it was. Does that mean it's the end of it? No. Um, empires don't die quickly that way. But I think that the writing is on the wall for the rest of the world, that the, the day that uh, 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 of a America just being able to do business however she wants to around the world is gone. And, you know, uh, human beings, again, back to square one, have to deal with those resources. You know, where can we get them cheaply? Who can we get them to make us for them? Let's set up a global society so we can buy them with pieces of nothing on a computer. It used to be pieces of paper, which meant nothing. Before that, it was actually metal, which was worth something. And now we have numbers on a screen glitches in a computer. So um, it's a, it's a lot to unpack, but going along with that line, how do you feel about like America's current political climate? Because like I, for one, I grew up, I mean, I'm, I'm from Liberia and I grew up in Africa most of my childhood. So, I mean, I know tribalism when I see it and we all know that democrat republican there's a lot of similarities in a lot of ways we all know biden is a center-right republican with a d next to his name at the end of the day but with that said there is like a clear 
fascist bent with America's right wing right now. And it just from 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 my gut and from the way things are looking, it's not looking like that's going to let up anytime soon. How do you feel about that? Well, with respect to the right wing, I think what we're, we all need to keep in perspective is that regardless of how we think they're fascist, these people see themselves as fighting evil. And I'm not going to say the, the, the ones that are part of a religious society that secretly go home and, and, and shake their hands together and say, oh, ha ha, look what I've accomplished. Like, I have to believe in this shit publicly, but it's all bullshit to me. There are going to be people like that in every in ideology around the world. But a vast majority of right wing Christians believe in something called the seven mountains. And the seven mountains is a theory based on the reclaiming uh, of institutions in the United States education, um, you know, entertainment, all these things. The seven mountains are the, the, the retaking of the soul, so to speak, of the United States that they believe has been destroyed. Now, they found a convenient target with liberalism. Uh, the idea that all of a sudden this, this idea that's somehow connected to the left or it's far left or... No, I mean, Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton running with far left talking points, so to speak, far left, right? What's far left confronting the United States about having these terrible predatory relationships with other countries that produce clothes? Oh God, I hear Republicans talking about that now. You know? And this is what it fostered, having no gatekeepers to, to, to knowledge. So you have elites complaining about other elites, you know? Look yeah. at Brexit. The people that were pushing Brexit were talking about elites, and they they went to to Exeter. They went to <laughs> they went to Oxford, and these are the people talking. Oh, these elites want to take everything from you. No, it's just that you garnered the benefit of a global society, and now people want people to pay their due. And I think that's what individuals have a problem with. You know, why does Haiti still have to keep money in a French bank? Why do West African nations still have to do that? That, that's absurd. Um, the moment they do a deal with the Chinese or with Russia, they're called communist and they're alienated. But again, it just goes back to those resources. That's it. And and again, I, I hate to bring it back full circle to that all the time, but that's nah. essentially what it is. So, I mean, do you have like a sense that we're coming towards, um, if not just in the U.S., just globally, do you think we're coming towards a reckoning of there being limited resources on, the, on this earth um i think for certain things yeah i think people are gonna have to deal with a lot of renewable stuff for a while if we can get the society to reboot in that way um a lot of people thought that was what the pandemic was about but no it was just about creating uh you know listen i'm not one of these people that think it's fake please that <laughs> No, no I, listen, I, I didn't go that far out there in my time away from making music. <laughs> but I definitely think the government overplayed its hand in controlling things and, you know, took advantage of this time, which is exactly what governments do. I mean, when people talk about Russia or China interfering in our elections, I say if they could, they would. If we could intervene in China or Russia's elections, we absolutely would. And we have intervened in elections around the world. So, I mean, that's where the pearl clutching gets crazy for me because I, as a student of history, just look at it and say, you know, are we going to have a giant civil war? You know, I, I don't know. 
But I know that if we do, it will be just to the benefit of of global yeah. powers like China, Russia, um, any emerging <laughs> African Union or Latin American Union that comes out. You know, we're talking again about a global society, and 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 that will give birth to other superpowers, the ones that we've kept down. You know, it's no secret that the war in uh, uh, between Iraq and Iran destabilized both of those countries to the benefit of the other superpowers around them because then they flowed in and said, well, now you have to become dependent on me. And, and, and that's an interesting way of looking at it. But you know, before it was the Bathists in, 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 in Iraq who were supported by Russia. Now, you know, you have the Iranians that are being supported by Russia. So again, you know, these, these are the politics that people have. In, in the beginning of our fight against ISIS, it was the Kurds who were on the front line. And then, you know, two years later, they were abandoned and thrown to the wayside. And that's politics and that's business. And, you know, I, I think people get emotionally attached to one side because it represents something that, you know, it, it is intertwined with all of their personal relationships. So it's difficult to ask a person to change their politics. You're asking them to change all of their friends. You're asking them to change all of their associations. You're not just asking them to change their opinion. You're asking them to change who they are, which is why it's very difficult for people to confront some of the things that they've been told because their reality and their, their identity rely on those beliefs to be true. You know, now when you get something as ridiculous as like trailer park Scientology, QAnon bullshit that people buy into, then you become one of the people that has to recreate these fantasies about, oh my God, when is this overthrow actually coming? Just like a person who gets sucked into another fantasy and gets asked about, okay, when is this great change coming from our progressive society? Where are these 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 platforms they keep running on that they keep promising us this is the last election before america goes into fascism and the rest of us are like okay but you're offering a diet coke version of that you're not actually offering the change because that requires you to not be funded by major corporations and they need that money there you go when the taliban banned music in afghanistan millions were plunged into silence Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, and stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, 
live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I feel like some of what you had to say about, like, our reckoning with the finite resources we have, and then particularly when you touched upon, uh, you know, U.S. intervention and various forms of foreign intervention in places like Iraq, it kind of started making me think a little bit about, I don't know if you've read Naomi, Naomi Klein's The, uh, the Shock Doctrine, um, but so, yeah, yeah, but sort of what she has to say about disaster capitalism. And that brought me to my next question about the way that a lot of Americans have seen, you know, outside of like what happened in 2005 and down in, with Katrina and the privatization of various relief efforts as a way for people to make money off of death and you know, economic precarity. I think on a massive scale across the country, we've been seeing people come to reckon with uh, the reality of disaster capitalism through the pandemic as, you know, billionaires gain $76 billion in wealth over the course of the pandemic as more people are shopping with Uber and Amazon. Meanwhile, the rest of us can't pay our rent. And this, I think, has also accelerated some radicalization among the public. Um, you know, just seeing our the government's failure to... the, the Well, not really failure, the government's prioritization of the economy over human life and things like that, in addition to, you know, the uprising last summer increasing people's awareness of racial injustice and the reality of the police state. Um, And we've also seen a lot of artists who were previously apolitical suddenly having an opinion about what's going on with mixed results. So I wanted to ask your opinion on these trends about, you know, people's radicalization during the pandemic, as well as the, the artistic response we've seen, as well as how COVID has impacted your activism and artistry personally. I think for me, one of the reasons why I formed the charity Rebel Army Runs is because during the pandemic, my sales actually went up. Obviously, I couldn't tour uh, because there was no touring and you couldn't even be indoors many places. But online, the following that I had uh, continued to come out in droves and support. And I had new people buying um, from all over the world that wanted to hear that kind of music. Um, and I think, you know, there's an old saying, to, to whom much is given, much is expected. And I thought to myself, if I'm doing good, let me just spread the wealth, make sure people know that I, I want to take care of the community, I want to make sure Harlem is, is doing well. And also because during this time, I went to the grocery store with my parents and I actually witnessed one of those little mini riots over like toilet paper and other essentials. And I said, this is a very, very low intensity version 
of what really a lack of resources will have. And it did show me, it showed, I saw rich people that, you know, normally wouldn't shove someone else for lettuce and kale and milk and, and other resources do terrible things to one another. Which is why I think it reinforces to me the absolute disgust I have in a society that blames poor people for their own conditions. Let's see you not eat for a few days. We'll see how you act in line. How about this? Let your child not have dinner the night before. We'll see how he does on the test the next day. These things that people take for granted when they have their bellies full. And I'm no exception. So when I see things like that, obviously I've seen a lot of terrible things in my life. But I think what that tuned me into is once you get over the initial trauma of what you've seen, you digest, wow, this is just how the world works. And, you know, it's not a question of you wanting to change the nature of human beings. Sure, you can. You just have to painstakingly go through each human being, I tell people. If you want to make people do something quickly, fast, sure, you can brainwash them into some political movement. And that has had positive and negative results for people. But making real hard change is a community change. It's a small scale change at first. It takes years to build. And what makes it so vulnerable is that the people who have the greatest vision for it are always the ones that are ripped down and destroyed. And there is no placeholder. And if you rely on those people to bring you through your, your, your struggle and your fight, you realize how fallible a human being can actually be. And you see that many of the heroes that we've had throughout our history have done things that would make them definitively cancelable in our society today. That is just like, wow, okay. But at the same time, when you look at them for what they've done and, and what they partook in, just being able to have that, that armament of knowledge, I think is necessary whenever you meet someone who's so entrenched in their own politics that you just take them out of it. I've had friends of mine, I go down to Miami, good God, I, you know I have arguments with people down there, but I always tell them, and, and we laugh because I tell them, you know, the difference between George Washington and Che Guevara, they're both the fathers of their country. They both killed prisoners of war, but George Washington actually owned slaves, and Che Guevara just said a bunch of racist shit when he was in Africa because he was frustrated with how things were going, and he grew up as a white Latino in a really privileged fucking society that he wouldn't have even been able to acknowledge as much politics as he had with everything else. So where do you want me to go with all this? I mean, that when you bring stuff like that into the conversation, it just forces people to say, all right, let me just take a hard look at my society. What, what, how did everything get to be this way? You know, why, why is the world this way? And, you know, there's no one simple reason. There's no one simple uh, a riddle that when it's answered is going to give you all the answers to life. But there are small victories that you can gain. And I think that's why people look for the quick and easy. You know, Mac, that, that's why people want the fast solution, Mariah, to politics, which is always, okay, let's build a movement really quickly, get something we want. But the American left's big failure is... You know, we want a bigger slice of the pie. Never asking whose hands are in that pie. How many children were working for, you know, 20 hours on a conveyor belt to make that pie? You know, what's actually the ingredients in the pie? You want a slice of this? You know, what if America goes to shit? Now you want equity in the company? What are you doing? Again, back to Marcus Garvey's existential question for black and brown people. Do you want a country of your own? 
Do you want to go back to where you, to where people stole you from, or do you want to just get along with the people here? That's it. And again, it, it, to me, I, I would rather live with human beings. I, I, I definitely see the right wing in Europe is different than the right wing in America because there's much more of an anti-multiculturalist society vibe there. But that's definitely growing here in the United States. I think that the difference is that, you know, the religious right makes it uh, or encourages there to be black and brown people that are conservative to give not just the movement, I would say, dressing, no, but to actually give it foot soldiers and to give it believers and donors you know, Latino conservatives, I, I laugh when people talk about, oh, I, I can't believe Mexicans voted for Trump. And I say, well, what are you talking about? A lot of Latinos have grown up in a very conservative society. That's what Reagan's vision was, that a, a lot of presidents before Trump were very, I wouldn't say better than Democrats, but relative to the way Democrats were deporting people, gave more opportunities for individuals to be there, not just Cubans. But I, I, that's just an unfortunate reality that we see. And the top depo- the top deporters have lately have been Democrats. So, I mean, when you look at the way the left has poised itself as this huge defender of immigrants, and that really hasn't been what it's been. You know what I mean? It's like the, the show, I love, my brother Ice-T is on a great show, SVU. Man, wonderful show. But go report a sex crime in New York. You're not going to get smiling detectives sometimes <laughs> people who care. You find real human beings who are swamped with 80 cases, 100 cases. They don't know what to say in many situations. I, I, I don't know. I think that you know, for what I can control, for what I can put out there, yeah. um, my message to people has always been um, keep asking those questions that make people uneasy. You know, make sure that if we do believe in a multicultural society, like I mentioned, and that we don't allow uh, a right or a left wing um, shove because of a 9-11 effect, um, we don't allow that to interrupt the idea that, listen, we're just human beings with different phenotypes. You know, if, if you read, I think you asked me at the very beginning what book I was reading. Um, where is it? I think it's, it's Diop. I was rereading Diop, Civilization of Barbarism. And I thought it was great because it talked about the early uh, 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 kind of society that human beings lived in when they were not the dominant species on the planet, when they were just trying to hold it together. And the whole idea yeah. that people say, oh, well, capitalism is this futuristic thing and socialism is a primitive principle. And I say, well, that primitive principle is about as primitive as making fire. And that's what everybody needs. <laughs> People still need fire today, you moron. Like the, the primitive principle of sharing and having some communal society where people have a game for what they put in. Yeah, we have a Diet Coke version of that with, you know, uh, Social Security that is probably going to be canceled um, and the other government programs that don't really address the need for a, a lot of people that are left out. I hate to backtrack, but you mentioned uh, the Rebel Army runs earlier. Could you explain to people exactly what that is and what y'all do? Oh, well, it, thank you. It's something that uh, I modeled off the um, the Black Panther Party's free breakfast program, um, but something that I always remember is one of my OGs was um, 
he was from the, the Black Panthers. But one of the things that I learned, God rest his soul, he passed away. His name is Elder Brother Smith. So all the OG Black Panthers know him. Um, but he explained something to me when I was a kid and he said, never forget that the, the Black Panthers were not these adults that you see play them on TV. These were kids. The reason that I was there is not because I was uh, gonna be a Panther, it's because I joined the BLA, uh, the Black Liberation Army at that time. And Elder Brother Smitty was a Vietnam veteran who had spent years at war and understood all these tactics. And I think that um, one of the things that I, I clearly remember learning um, and adapting from his example was that the movement is built by young people, right? And in order for them to have any success, they're gonna see the elders fail in some way, shape or form. And um, we have to learn from these failures and these successes. And he said, never forget, the, the thing that we remember the most is when people cut the supply line, then there's nothing. An army always marches on its stomach. And I said to him, okay, wow. So seeing a pandemic struck New York City, I said to myself, we need to reach out to Brooklyn, Queens, Harlem. And we even did one um, in Philly with the MOVE organization. People, because I've always been a big supporter of Mumia. Um, but I think that it was just seeing that need. And when people say there was a toilet paper shortage, there wasn't just a toilet paper shortage, brother. There was um, a, a shortage of feminine products, which is crazy. Um, a shortage of baby food and diapers, all kinds of other stuff. So we basically jumped in to fulfill the need, only that instead of servicing young people, because you can't have soup kitchens during the pandemic, you can't be indoors with anybody. You can't even give people food with the same spoon. You gotta go wash a spoon after it's in their bowl. So at that point, we got these non-perishable goods, about two weeks worth of food, um, and we started giving them to the senior centers at um, the NYCHA uh, housing projects in New York City. So we serviced at first um, three projects, uh, the Grant Houses, which are by where my old block was. Um, then we had the Albany Houses, which was in Brooklyn, um, by Troy Avenue. And then we had uh, the Dykeman Houses. So these were the first three places that we were really supporting. Um, and then we've extended ourselves to a few other locations as well. And it's just been heartwarming and heartbreaking because there have been government programs that I've paid attention to that have been around for the better part of 14, 15 years that were recently canceled, like during the pandemic or right before. And, you know, that wasn't taken into account. A lot of people don't get their check or sometimes a check is late or whatever it may be. So postal system acting up made that even worse. Um, so people became reliant on some of these food drops. And the heartbreaking part is when you go there once a month and you see that somebody has obviously made the two-week pack stretch for a whole month. And they're, they're really right there back on it. And these people aren't on drugs. They're, they're hardworking. They're working whatever job they can get. And it's offensive to me again when I see people blame poor people 
for their condition. Like, oh, what? look at this homeless person. Go get a job. Yeah, I wonder what that motherfucker's resume looks like, man. You know, you got to clean himself up first. All, all those 10 years of missing can't go positive in a job interview. What kind of social skills does a person have? And what do they have to be retaught and helped with if a society really is taxing people to the point of, you know, they're not being able to pay their other bills? You know, then what about the services that it provides? And at the end of the day, that's not what it's here for. That is the window dressing. We're here because we have a militaristic society that has gained control of resources. And I'm doing whatever I can on the ground to give those resources. I'm bringing it all the way back to the <laughs> I'm giving out those free resources to the community. So pound of beans, uh, pound of rice, uh, and milk, um, the two-week supply of oatmeal. Uh, we have mac and cheese, soups, um, the raviolis, just a, a, a ton of good stuff. Uh, we try to keep a low sodium for a bunch of the products that we have because, again, we're dealing with elders. But because we deal with elders, we always get insure, which I've realized is a godsend to to elderly folk. Um, we we gave away hats and gloves um, during the coldest part of the winter. Um, and then we have Pedialyte and, like, Pepto-Bismol, just because I know a lot of the elders, they take care of the kids and a lot of black and Latino families. So while the parents is working, the grandparents is at home with the kids. So we leave them, you know, whatever other stuff they get, you know, pampers, kids medicine, whatever. Every, every, every week we're making a drop somewhere. So there's a, there's a page for it on Instagram, at Rebel Army Runs. I think one of the most beautiful things that's emerged from the pandemic is this awareness of and engagement in mutual aid, just communities coming together to support each other, support those that are without, so that there may be a time in the future that person can give back to someone who previously had their back. And, you know, like, I, as an elected official, like, I also embrace that kind of work. I understand that so much community building needs to be done outside of the state because, like, we, do, we don't necessarily have a highly functional government at various levels in the United States. But ultimately, when you, when you scale up projects like that, there's so much that the federal government, local even state governments can do that, like, ordinary people can't do. Like, y'all out here buying, like, Pedialyte. Like, imagine how much Pedialyte the federal government could be buying in bulk. They could just they could just nationalize Pedialyte. They could just nationalize the corporation and everybody get free Pedialyte, right? And so, um, to you, what would you say is like the biggest like piece of public like public policy issue at the federal level that you think needs to be addressed right now? We've talked a lot about how these systems interconnect with militarism, sure. imperialism, oligarchy, all these things. But like, if there could be like a single piece of public Something policy that from you could put the current news cycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right you now. know, stuff okay. that, yeah. Well, here's one thing that's interesting that I see is happening little by little. It just happened in New York, the legalization of marijuana. And I remind people, before we start partying and rolling up joints, um, at uh, John Jay uh, College of, of Criminal Justice, I was there to see Jim Vretos and I was there to see Dr. Cornell West and had a wonderful conversation about something called restorative justice. And what that means is that the, if the government is paying its bills with weed money, then it shouldn't be putting you in jail or being able to take away your voting rights for doing the same thing or having done the same thing at some point in time. So even though as a public policy issue, I know that people think this is already dealt with, where we legalized it, it's done now. 
That's the catch. You have to follow through the whole way. And I think that's where people find whatever movement lacking. You know, there has to be more follow through in that sense. So before people say, okay, let's just open up dispensaries and all this stuff. What about those people who haven't been able to get a job? Because of that, that criminal history, because of those felonies on their record for possession or people that have done no harm to anybody but themselves. You, know, you look at a lot of people who use drugs, the person who unfortunately they've hurt most is themselves. Now, when you couple this with other horrific crimes, all right, I, I, you're gonna find me to be less sympathetic, obviously. But um, I think for the vast majority of people who are, have been caught with drugs or have drugs on their record, it's been something that has been racialized, politicized, every size in the world. And I think that it's, it's a giant issue because it's not just something that, you know, our government uses for slush money, for slush funds. No, it upholds a huge part of the American economy. For people to, to, to not know what the pharmaceutical industry is, it's a cartel in the United States of America, like narcos, except better dressed and everybody speaks shitty English. Yeah, so this is what I mean. This is what we're doing. Yeah, um, so something that I don't think a lot of people know about you or doesn't really get uh, talked about with you as often as I think it should. This might be some too insider, some fan shit. But um, I think like around 2009, uh, 2010, you helped build an orphanage in a school in Afghanistan. And like, I remember that was like around the time that that was happening. I had... I had known about you and I'd heard your music but I, that was when I think I was like kind of really becoming a fan just of your music just in general and then that I heard about that happening you know it, it, like that's something that you were doing outside of music I just remember thinking why isn't this like a bigger deal you know what I'm saying so <laughs> I'm just just you, did, did you ever end up um how how, how did that whole thing uh, come about and did you end up ever doing anything like that again throughout the years since um I was invited to Afghanistan because I met these people from an organization called Obeid. And this is a hard grouping, excuse me, hard group of young people that were making changes in their community. And they approached me after a show about um, potentially doing some collaborative effort. Um, I didn't know anything about orphanage building or anything else at the time. School building, um, but um, through a painstaking process of learning slowly and really exercising the most amount of star power that I could at the time to fundraise a good a hundred and some odd thousand dollars. I have the exact figures, but um, so everything had to be done by the book, had to be on paper. Um, and then to actually go out there and oversee the final stages of construction um, myself was just life-changing. Um, I think I learned a lot about humanity in general in Afghanistan. Um, I think that I learned from the moment I got there that the only reason we hold that country is because we paid off all of these warlords. Um, I think that it's strategically close to China and people forget that too. As much people have forgot that more than they forgot that I went there and built an orphanage. <laughs> uh, people forget that we have 
hundreds of thousands of troops at the border of China. Does China have hundreds of thousands of troops anywhere near the border of the United States? When we talk about Russia being worried about us, you know, did, did we overthrow Canada the way that they overthrow Canada the way we overthrew the Ukraine? You know, just seeing the lives, the everyday lives of the people in Afghanistan really gave me some hope for the human race. As I said, for every, you know, soft-hearted individual that I don't think is going to make it that I run through, uh, run into here in the United States, these people here are going to survive nuclear winter. Like, <laughs> these are just tough people. But again, the reality of what their toughness is was brought to mind. You know, I had a conversation with a young guy who was a, a, a professor, right? And he was a very soft-spoken, very well-mannered, legs crossed, tiny man. And I asked him, I was like, you know, not to be rude, I just wanted to know. I said, you know, what did you do during the jihad? And he, in a very soft-spoken manner, said to me that they were R the RPG teams were divided into two people. And that one person was the shooter and the other carried 14 or 15 RPGs in a backpack. And he had to be really careful so he didn't blow up. And I said, Jesus Christ. I said, so what did you do? And he said, I carried RPGs for most of the war. And he goes, you know, usually people blow up, but I had a really good gunner and, you know. And he looked like an average, ordinary guy. Not a harmful person. He's the type of dude you would see in Soho waiting online for a latte. And here he was, a battle-hardened warrior. And not that he wore it on his shoulder like some badge of honor, like people like to put in movies. No, but his lesson of the day was even more horrific. It said, we lost an entire generation of poets, teachers, lawyers, doctors. So anyway, yeah, the brother just told me about all the people in his society that he had lost in that generation. He said, that's the price of freedom. That's the price of being a quote unquote unconquerable people. You know, of everyone saying, well, the USSR failed here and England failed here and uh, the United States is on its way out as well. This is the price we pay. You know, during the Russian invasion, we lost almost a million people, and they lost 18,000 people. And we were willing to trade six, seven lives for one. But imagine how many people were lost, right? How many brilliant minds, how many, uh, you know, creative intellect, intellects were snuffed out. And that's the price of freedom. That's the price of of being unconquered. That's the real price of revolution. If you're in a room full of revolutionaries, just take a look around you and imagine the revolution's over and more than half of them are gone because that's how it is. That's the price that you have to pay to change lives is to put your life up on the line. And it doesn't always have to be in some like messianic, sacrificial way. No, sometimes it's a slow burn of putting your entire life into something so you can move the needle a little bit because you know that moves everything else. You know, that, that, that was my experience in Afghanistan. Um, it was a success uh, in every sense of the word. Um, did I ever do anything like that afterwards? Yeah, I was involved in a program um, called Arms Around Haiti and Hip Hop for Haiti, uh, which came out of SOBs which is a club in downtown New York where a lot of the staff were uh, Haitian, uh, Caribbean, um, and basically in, in general, we raised, raised a, a ton of money doing a show with um, 
uh, Styles P and uh, Cormega and Wyclef. And this is the thing I always tell people. Like, when, when people talk about Wyclef and all that thing, the stuff that happened with Yele and Haiti, I, I say they can't say a bad word to me about that, man. Because I physically was there. And I saw that there were a series of apartment structures that had collapsed. And there were like 40 children that were homeless and they were finding their parents. And Wyclef had these 40 children living in, in like the background of the house, had like a nursing staff, people doing for other people. I saw people digging people out of the rubble. I saw a human spirit that is just unbroken. As to whatever happened afterwards, I can't answer for that. But when I was down there, I saw people that were really committed to, to making a change. And what we did is that we purchased uh, two homes for an older woman who had brought some of these orphans into the house. So it wasn't the exact same thing as uh, over there, because obviously we were in the shadow of a lot larger and more well-structured organizations. But for whatever we did, you know, we raised, you know, I think it was like twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 at the show. And then we went out there, we got these homes, and a bunch of kids had places to sleep, and we had food to feed them. And, you know, the other people, I think their fund, uh, one thing that I saw them do is actually they restructured a, a water purifier that was broken. So I saw real change happening there. There is an incredible amount of corruption. But I think that that is not something that the United States should be ever pointing the finger at Haiti about. So it's important to recognize these <laughs> things and put them into perspective. Yeah. So when people say, oh, Haiti's so corrupt, I say, yeah, sure. Uh, up front at the airport, yeah, you're going to see corruption in general. But here in the United States, how do you think bills get passed? Like, here, there's plenty of corruption. It's just the stakes are higher, and you have to be in the right room, and they don't take money from strangers. <laughs> That's it. So, you know, understand corruption in the United States versus corruption in the third world. <laughs> they'll take money from strangers in the United States. And in other developed worlds, they'll take your money. They just want to know that you're not a fed or a cop or you're going to get them in trouble. So they won't take money from strangers. That's it. <laughs> but if they know you and you're in France and, and you got the connect, they'll take your money. If you need something, everything's for sale. There you go. Okay, before I let you go, when I first heard that the Middle Passage was going to be the name of your next album, I'm pretty sure George W. Bush was still president, my dude, so like, what's up? <laughs> For real. The long-awaited Middle Passage album. I'm, I'm asking that kind of selfishly as, you know, on some Immortal Technique fanboy shit. But, you know, I'm sure there are listeners who enjoy you too, who might not follow you on Instagram and whatnot. Uh, what, what's up with that? When's it coming out? Um, or I don't even want to ask it like that. No, like, no, when's no. it coming um, out? Just I'm in, in the studio tomorrow. I was in the studio um, in California about a week ago with Chino XL. So we finished a song with him and one of the artists. Um, global artist um, and I think it's just been a, a, a process of trying to get it coupled with everything else going on in my life um, I wish I could blame it on one thing like just procrastination or just you know the 
the issues that I've dealt with, but there were there was some technical stuff that we had to do. Mm-hmm. And that involved some people that were on the record that uh, could no longer be on there. Uh, I see, I see. Um, then I think that for me, having learned the business, I didn't want to sample as much. So um, I wanted to use interpolations. Mm-hmm. So we had to replay a lot of the music. I see, I see. Also, one thing that was important to me about the recording of this record is that I wrote a lot of old songs. Um, some of the songs, probably like five or six of them are actually really old songs that are from the era in which I really started working on this. And I just reworked the concept, and of course I'm a better lyricist than I was back then. Um, but I, I, I let people know that when you make a record that's honoring uh, an African genocide. So, so the album is going to be like about the the Middle Passage. Well, yeah, there's definitely aspects of that, but okay. there are things that are related to it as well, and how that built the society that we live in now. But when you make a a, a, a record about something like that, there there has to be a certain amount of respect paid for uh, to the ancestors. So there won't be any any N word on the Middle oh, Passage. Words. Um, and as a matter of fact, going forward in my music, um, we're not going to have none of that neither. I think that it's not its not that I'm going to criticize other people who still use it. I think that in terms of me making this record and studying the, the that suffering and that pain and it, the way it was actually broken down and systematically done and built off the blueprint of something that was done to other people as well. I just feel like it's just an evolution in, uh, in who I am. And that's why we're not doing that. Word. So where can um, people find all things Immortal Technique? Oh, you can go to uh, viperrecords.com. Uh, you can find me on the internet at uh, Tech Immortal on IG and Facebook and then Mortal Tech on Twitter. That's what's up, yeah. Hey, thank you. Thank you <laughs> for coming on and talking to us, yeah. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much to you, Mac and Mariah, for having me on the show. Um, and I hope that somebody got something from it out there. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they will. Immortal Technique, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, please, man. I can't do another two presidential terms for that album. <laughs> Come on, let's get it. Once again, thank you for coming on, man. Thank you so much for having me. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That was the one and only Immortal Technique. We wanted to give a big shout out to him for stopping by and having a little chat with us. What we got coming up next week, Mariah? So uh, I recently had the opportunity to speak with Eugene Perrier, who was a founding member of the Party of Socialism and Liberation and ran as their vice presidential candidate uh, in 2008 and 2016 and is also a journalist with uh, Breakthrough News, um, and he traveled down to Haiti with uh, the Breakthrough News team, uh, I think maybe a month and a month or so ago, to cover the uprising that's happened down there um, recently. It's kind of a, a, a simmering unrest that kind of broke into a boil and overflowed in the streets regarding um, uh, the president, uh, Moyes, and his uh, refusal to leave office and, you know, corruption and 
authoritarianism um, on the rise down in Haiti. So we're going to talk to Eugene a little bit about his experiences down there and as well just some more of the sociopolitical context in which the uprising has taken place and listen to some dope Haitian hip-hop, of course. Yeah, and as for this one, we're done until next week. But you know we can't go out just in silence. Joel, my man, can you drop a beat for the people? I got an old history, there's no flinching me So simply, smoke rappers like rotisserie More infamy, your soul's just gon' live with me Pull glycerine, explode your whole limousine If I rule the world and everything in it I turn every hospital to a free clinic We eat spinach, free felons with a steep sentence But it ain't really y'all sweet, now what you think this is? Look, way before the natural disasters will get involved They gon' come with ratchets and flatten the city hall Crooked politicians with cash in their pity paws No one give a fuck about fascists, we kill them all I tell them give me the loot like I'm fashioned by Biggie Smalls Passengers that'll shoot in the back of your pretty car Take them up from the burbs to the slums where the cities are Put them out in the curb and then tell them to get a jar These niggas Hollywood trying to get a star I put my hands in the dash, light me up in the car Now my mama and my girl is trying to get a charge But the cops is all dirty, nobody respect the Sarge Hope that you listen, no one forgiven Like Chauvin in prison, I hope the decision leads to more of them thrown in the system Feel like a win, but in your stomach you know that it isn't Real bad boy, like a nigga just roll with the pistons should I be gentle with myself because of Chauvin? Should I find a megaphone and shout into the smoke clears? Should I simply vote every four years? Should I become a lawyer, fight the system from inside? Or is it so totally broken that we gotta start over with the whole thing? Should I present myself to Twitter, hell hopeless who's going All I really know is we might have nabbed a bad apple, but still we have to grapple with holy poison orchards. Hey, this is Dope Knife. I'm Lingua Franca. We are waiting on reparations. See you next, next week. week. Listen to Waiting on Reparations on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, and stories should never be about us without us. 
Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.